Section eight of History of Egypt, Volume One by Gaston Maspero, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter One, The Nile and Egypt, Part Eight. The country was divided among communities whose members were supposed to be descended from the same seed, Pate, and to belong to the same family, Paitu. The chiefs of them were called Ropaitu, the guardians or pastors of the family and in later times their name became a title applicable to the nobility in general. Families combined and formed groups of various importance under the authority of a head chief, Ropei Tuha. They were, in fact, hereditary lords, dispensing justice, levying taxes in kind on their subordinates, reserving to themselves the redistribution of land, leading their men to battle, and sacrificing to the gods. The territories over which they exercised authority formed small states, whose boundaries, even now, in some places, can be pointed out with certainty. The principality of the Terebinth occupied the very heart of Egypt, where the valley is widest, and the course of the Nile most advantageously disposed by nature, a country well suited to be the cradle of an infant civilization. Siut, the capital, is built almost at the foot of the Libyan range, on a strip of land barely a mile in width, which separates the river from the hills. A canal surrounds it on three sides, and makes, as it were, a natural ditch about its walls. During the inundation it is connected with the mainland only by narrow causeways, shaded with mimosas, and looking like a raft of verdure aground in the current. The site is as happy as it is picturesque. Not only does the town command the two arms of the river, opening or closing the waterway at will, but from time immemorial the most frequented of the routes into central Africa has terminated at its gates bringing it to the commerce of the Sudan. It held sway at the outset over both banks, from range to range, northward as far as Deirut, where the true Bar Yusuf leaves the Nile, and southward to the neighborhood of Gebel Sheikh Haridi. The extent and original number of other principalities is not so easily determined. The most important to the north of Siut were those of the Hare and the Oleander. The principality of the Hare never reached the dimensions of that of its neighbor, the Terebinth, but its chief town was Kamunu, whose antiquity was so remote that a universally accepted tradition made it the scene of the most important acts of creation. That of the Oleander, on the contrary, was even larger than that of the Terebinth, and from Hininsu, its chief governor ruled alike over the marshes of the Fayum and the plains of Benisuf. To the south, Apu, on the right bank, governed a district so closely shut in between a bend of the Nile and two spurs of the range, that its limits have never varied much since ancient times. Its inhabitants were divided in their employment between weaving and the culture of cereals. From early times they possessed the privilege of furnishing clothing to a large part of Egypt, and their looms, at the present day, still make those checked or striped malayas which the fellow women wear over their long blue tunics. Beyond Apu, Tinis, the Girga of the Arabs, situate on both banks of the river, rivaled Kumunu in antiquity and Siut in wealth. Its plains still produce the richest harvests and feed the most numerous herds of sheep and oxen in the Said. As we approach the cataract, information becomes scarcer. Kubti and Anu of the south, the Koptos and Hermonthis of the Greeks, shared peaceably the plain occupied later on by Thebes and its temples, and Nekhabit and Zobu watched over the safety of Egypt. Nekhabit soon lost its position as a frontier town, 
and that portion of Nubia lying between Gebel Silsila and the rapids of Syene formed a kind of border province, of which Nimbut Ambus was the principal sanctuary, and Abu Elephantine the fortress. Beyond this were the barbarians, and those inaccessible regions whence the Nile descended upon our earth. The organization of the delta, it would appear, was more slowly brought about. It must have greatly resembled that of the lowlands of equatorial Africa, towards the confluence of the Bar el-Abiyad and the Bar el-Ghazal. Great tracts of mud, difficult to describe as either solid or liquid, marshes dotted here and there with sandy islets, bristling with papyrus reeds, water-lilies, and enormous plants, through which the arms of the Nile sluggishly pushed their ever-shifting course, low-lying wastes intersected with streams and pools, unfit for cultivation and scarcely available for pasturing cattle. The population of such districts, engaged in a ceaseless struggle with nature, always preserved relatively ruder manners, and a more rugged and savage character, impatient of all authority. The conquest of this region began from the outer edge only. A few principalities were established at the apex of the delta in localities where the soil had earliest been won from the river. It appears that one of these divisions embraced the country south of and between the bifurcation of the Nile. Aunu of the north, the Heliopolis of the Greeks, was its capital. In very early times the principality was divided and formed three new states, independent of each other. Those of Aunu and the Haunch were opposite to each other, the first on the Arabian, the latter on the Libyan bank of the Nile. The district of the White Wall marched with that of the Haunch on the north, and on the south touched the territory of the Oleander. Further down the river, between the more important branches, the governors of Saiz and of Bubastus, of Athribis and of Busiris, shared among themselves the primitive delta. The two frontier provinces of unequal size, the Arabian on the east in the Wadi Tumilat, and the Libyan on the west to the south of Lake Mariotis, defended the approaches of the country from the attacks of Asiatic Bedouins and of African nomads. The marshes of the interior and the dunes of the littoral were not conducive to the development of any great industry or civilization. They only compromised tracts of thinly populated country, like the principalities of the Harpoon and of the Cow, and others whose limits varied from century to century with the changing course of the river. The work of rendering the marshes salubrious, and of digging canals, which had been so successful in the Nile Valley, was less efficacious in the delta, and proceeded more slowly. Here the embankments were not supported by a mountain chain. They were continued at random across the marshes, cut at every turn to admit the waters of a canal or of an arm of the river. The waters left their usual bed at the least disturbing influence, and made a fresh course for themselves across country. If the inundation were delayed, the soft and badly drained soil again became a slough. Should it last but a few weeks longer than usual, the work of several generations was for a long time undone. The delta of one epoch rarely presented the same aspect as that of previous periods, and northern Egypt never became as fully mistress of her soil as the Egypt of the south. These first principalities, however small they appear to us, were yet too large to remain undivided. In those times of slow communication, the strong attraction which a capital exercised over the provinces under its authority did not extend over a wide radius. That part of the population of the Terebinth, living sufficiently near to Siut to come into the town for a few hours in the morning, returning in the evening to the villages when business was done, would not feel any desire to withdraw from the rule of the prince who governed there. 
On the other hand, those who lived outside that restricted circle were forced to seek elsewhere some places of assembly to attend to the administration of justice, to sacrifice in common to the national gods, and to exchange the produce of the fields and of local manufactures. Those towns which had the good fortune to become such rallying points naturally played the part of rivals to the capital, and their chiefs, with the district whose population, so to speak, gravitated around them, tended to become independent of the prince. When they succeeded in doing this, they often preserved for the new state thus created the old name, slightly modified by the addition of an epithet. The primitive territory of Siut was in this way divided into three distinct communities, two which remained faithful to the old emblem of the tree, the upper terebinth, with Siut itself in the centre, and the lower terebinth, with Kusit to the north. The third in the south and east took as their totem the immortal serpent which dwelt in their mountains, and called themselves the Serpent Mountain, whose chief town was that of the Sparrowhawk. The territory of the Oleander produced by its dismemberment the principality of the upper Oleander, that of the lower Oleander, and that of the Knife. The territory of the Harpoon in the Delta divided itself into the western and eastern Harpoon. The fission in most cases could not have been accomplished without struggles, but it did take place, and all the principalities having a domain of any considerable extent had to submit to it, however they may have striven to avoid it. This parceling out was continued as circumstances afforded opportunity, until the whole of Egypt, except the half-desert districts about the cataract, became but an agglomeration of petty states nearly equal in power and population. The Greeks called them gnomes, and we have borrowed the word from them. The natives named them in several ways, the most ancient term being neut, which may be translated domain, and the most common appellation in the recent times being huspu, which signifies district. The number of gnomes varied considerably in the course of centuries. The hieroglyphic monuments and classical authors fixed them sometimes at thirty-six, sometimes at forty, sometimes at forty-four, or even fifty. The little that we know of their history, up to the present time, explains the reason of this variation. Ceaselessly quarrelled over by the princely families who possessed them, the gnomes were alternately humbled and exalted by civil wars, marriages, and conquest, which caused them continually to pass into fresh hands, either entire or divided. The Egyptians, whom we are accustomed to consider as a people respecting the established order of things, and conservative of ancient tradition, showed themselves as restless and as prone to modify or destroy the work of the past as the most inconstant of our modern nations. The distance of time which separates them from us, and the almost complete absence of documents, gives them an appearance of immobility, by which we are liable to be unconsciously deceived, when the monuments still existing shall have been unearthed, their history will present the same complexity of incidents, the same agitations, the same instability, which we suspect or know to have been characteristic of most other Oriental nations. One thing alone remained stable among them in the midst of so many revolutions, and which prevented them from losing their individuality and from coalescing into a common unity. This was the belief in and worship of one particular deity. If the little capitals of the petty states whose origin is lost in a remote past, Edfu and Dendera, Nekhabit and Buto, Siut, Thinis, Kumunu, Sais, Bubastis, Athribis, had only possessed that importance which resulted from the presence of an ambitious petty prince, or from the wealth of their inhabitants, they would never have passed safe and sound through the long centuries of existence, 
which they enjoyed from the opening to the close of Egyptian history. Fortune raised their chiefs, some even to the rank of rulers of the world, and in turn abased them, side by side with the earthly ruler, whose glory was but too often eclipsed, there was enthroned in each nome a divine ruler, a deity, a god of the domain, Nitir Nuiti, whose greatness never perished. The princely families might be exiled or become extinct, the extent of the territory might diminish or increase, the town might be doubled in size and population or fall in ruins. The god lived on through all these vicissitudes, and his presence alone preserved intact the rights of the state over which he reigned as a sovereign. If any disaster befell his worshippers, his temple was the spot where the survivors of the catastrophe rallied around him, their religion preventing them from mixing with the inhabitants of neighboring towns, and from becoming lost among them. The survivors multiplied with that extraordinary rapidity which is the characteristic of the Egyptian fella, and a few years of peace sufficed to repair losses which apparently were irreparable. Local religion was the tie which bound together those diverse elements of which each principality was composed, and as long as it remained, the gnomes remained. When it vanished, they disappeared with it. End of chapter 1 End of section 8 Read by Professor Heather and By For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org